we pray that you would do that uh, in us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, it is great to be back in the Gospel of John together this morning. And again, a huge thanks to my friend Steve McCready for stepping in last week and bringing what uh, I trust and what I know is a really encouraging word to us from the beginning of John chapter 10, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who will come and, and care for his sheep. I love how Steve reminded us that there are so many places in the Old Testament where God is, is called and calls himself the shepherd of Israel. And how Steve pointed us especially to Ezekiel chapter 34. And, and I love how looking at that Old Testament passage and then looking at what Jesus said, we can see that the Jesus is the true and better shepherd that has come to, to lead all people and his people. And that verse that, that stood out for me from Ezekiel 34 was verse 16 where uh, the prophet talks about this good shepherd who's coming and, and Jesus takes this onto himself, uh, this, uh, this prophecy where uh, Ezekiel 34, 16 says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. That's, that's our good shepherd. That's our Jesus. That's what he came to do. Not to make us feel guilty for not living up to some standard, but he came to be our redeemer, to, to show us how to live, to, to heal the blind, to heal the sick, to draw us back into relationship with God. This week we're looking at the second half or the, the latter half of John chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, I'll invite you to open up there with me. As you're turning there, uh, this question might be a little raw, and I wasn't totally sure how to ask it this morning in light of everything that's happened in the last uh, 12 to 15 months or so, but have you ever indulged yourself going down the rabbit holes of conspiracy theories? Again, maybe a bit of a dangerous question where we are right now, but I would say even pre-COVID, in, in the West, we seem to just love a good conspiracy theory. We just eat them up. For some reason, we, we so often have this, this idea or this belief that, that the simplest answer to a problem or the simplest explanation for an event just, just cannot be true for some reason. There's, there's got to be more to it. A lot of times we see this idea, this conspiracy theory, this simplest explanation being applied to the historicity of, of the Bible and to Jesus' life and, and Christianity for sure. It's, it's, it's too simple. There's got to be something more to that. There are, of course, far too many conspiracy theories when it comes to the last few months, so we're not going to touch those with any length pole. But even before COVID, I'm sure you can think of a few good conspiracy theories. You know, uh, of course, as you know, Elvis is still alive, singing somewhere, uh, probably with Tupac Shakur, and I think maybe Amelia Earhart is with them. I, I, I don't know. There's lots of theories around uh, JFK's murder, right? There's lots of, lots of people who think the earth is actually flat. I, can we call that a conspiracy theory? I, we'll throw it in this category. And another one, uh, the moon landing. I read a stat this week that said that, that 6% of Americans, and maybe the stats are similar for Canada, we'll assume they are for this morning, but 6% of Americans assume and believe that the moon landing was faked. And another 5% aren't sure. They would categorize themselves as uncertain. So that means when you walk down the street, if you ask people if someone had walked on the moon, about one in nine would either say no or, you know what, I'm not totally sure. 
Now, the, the commentator that highlighted that stat likened the, the conspiracy theorist of today to the religious leaders of Jesus' time in the text we're about to get into. See, no matter how many signs they saw, no matter how many miracles they saw, no matter how much evidence there was that, that Jesus presented, the words he spoke, the way he treated people, the way that he pulled Old Testament prophecy and applied it to himself, no matter what he did, they just refused to believe Jesus was who he said he was. They're, they're just stuck in their unbelief despite all that's going on around them. And so in the verses we're going to look at this morning, we will watch Jesus expose the unbelief of the religious leaders. There's, there's a group of people who had seen the things he'd done. They'd heard the stories. They'd, they'd seen the signs. They'd been a part of the miracles. They, they've, rec- they've seen the blind man who's no longer blind. They'd probably seen the paralytic walking through town, and yet they still antagonize and challenge Jesus. Now, we're getting really close to the end of Jesus' public ministry here in these verses. We're about three months after the Festival of Tabernacles, which we looked at for sort of chapters 7, 8, and and maybe 9 as well. And so there's only a few months left in Jesus' earthly life. And a good chunk of his last days he spent kind of just with his closest disciples. What we'll see in this text, in in the second half of chapter 10 here, is that as Jesus looks towards the cross and recognizes his, his days are coming to a close, he doesn't just sort of sneak away and spend time with his closest disciples, but instead he comes face to face with those who believe. Or sorry, for, with those who don't believe. And in coming face to face with those who don't believe, he, he confronts their unbelief. He exposes it for what it is, and then he challenges them to believe him. And that's our big idea for this morning, that Jesus confronts unbelief, exposes it for what it is, and challenges unbelievers to follow him. Let's jump in. I'll start reading John chapter 10. I'm going to start at verse 22. At that time, the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus starts out here by exposing their reasons for not believing him. It seems as the Jews come into the picture in this, this passage, the, the religious leaders come into our passage here in verse uh, 24, that they're asking Jesus a really good question. Jesus, we're confused. We're not totally sure what's going on here. Just give it to us straight. Are you or are you not the Messiah? But even though the, this question looks innocent enough from them on the surface, their, their hearts are not actually looking for truth. And we can see this a couple of ways. Uh, the word that's, that's translated as, as gathered around in the English Standard Version can also be read as, as surrounded. You know, the Jews gathered around Jesus. And that word's only used four times in the Bible. And two of those times it's referring to armies that have encircled an enemy. This is not a, a friendly meet up in the temple. And we actually don't need to read many verses farther along to find out they're really trying to corner Jesus so they can accuse him and convict him of blasphemy, of speaking against God. 
And so their question, are you the Christ or are you the Messiah, is a leading question designed to trap them, trying to trap Jesus. It's interesting that to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has only used the term Messiah or the Christ, as the question they're asking is. He's only used that term for himself once. Do you remember where it was? It was quite a bit earlier. It was way back when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Why, why didn't he use that more often? If that's who he is, if that's why he came, why didn't he just tell people? If you've been tracking with us through the series, you might have some pretty good ideas why Jesus didn't use that language for himself, and I would love to see you throw them in the chat. But one of the major themes in John is misunderstanding. Jesus is, is often speaking and acting on a spiritual level and with a spiritual perspective and an eternal perspective. He's pointing people beyond what they can see and taste and touch. And, they point, and he's pointing them towards eternity. Whereas so often what the people around Jesus, and maybe especially the religious leaders right now, are, they're focused on the moment. What's, what's Jesus going to do for me today? How is Jesus going to get me out of this mess? He fed us yesterday, maybe he'll feed us today. He healed that guy yesterday, maybe he'll heal me today. He's talking about a new kingdom, maybe he'll get rid of Rome for us. So one of the key reasons that Jesus has yet to use the title of Messiah for himself among the Jewish people, among the religious leaders, is that as we've seen chapter by chapter, their expectation of Messiah was way off. Again, we noticed earlier in the book that the people wanted to to seize Jesus and make him king so that he would overthrow Rome. And we're actually going to see more of this in the next chapter as well. But here in these verses, Jesus declares that, in fact, he has made it clear who he is. He has made it clear through both his words and his works that he is the promised Messiah. He is the one God said, I will send. He is the one that will redeem God's people. Remember, John has told us that he wrote enough of the things Jesus said and enough of the things Jesus did in his gospel that we would be able to believe and have life through Jesus. And so as we've walked through this gospel together, we've tried to look closely at the miracles and the signs Jesus has done. We've tried to look closely at the words Jesus has said and where he said them and how he said them. And we've tried to understand those things as the first century Jewish people would, as the disciples, as the first witnesses would have. We've tried to understand what Jesus has said and done in light of who he is and what he's doing. And yet the religious leaders accuse Jesus of not being clear. And so he just straight up calls them out on that. Again, John has given us enough to to see and believe But here's a few of the things that John has recorded for us so far. Just a quick recap of the book, even. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. He took ceremonial religious washing jars and he filled them with something new. A new and better wine. Then he cleared the temple, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's zeal for the house of God. In chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist or or John the Baptizer testify that, that Jesus was the Messiah the Lamb of God, Savior of the world. And he declared that that Jesus must increase and John himself must decrease. 
In chapter 4, Jesus healed the son of a royal official with a word. He was kilometers or miles away. And the boy was sick and dying, and Jesus said he will be healed, and the boy was healed. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been lame or had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he got up and walked. And then Jesus called God his father, called himself the son of God and the son of man, which was the title for the Messiah that we read back in Daniel. In chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children and then miraculously crossed the sea and then called himself the bread of life and again the son of man. In chapter 7, Jesus stood up in the festival of shelters and he applied uh, the messianic passage from Isaiah 55 to himself. He told the watching crowd that he came and that they need to come to him to receive living water, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which could only be given by the Messiah. In chapter 8, still at that same festival of shelters, he took a passage from Isaiah 4 and applied it to himself. He called himself the light of the world, and he promised the light of life to all those who were walking in darkness. And he called God his Father again, and he called himself the divine name I Am. Chapter 9, Jesus had healed the man born blind. Chapter 10, as we saw last week, Jesus applied the, the messianic promise of a coming good shepherd to himself clearly saying that I am the fulfillment of those promises. Beyond this, Jesus has repeatedly said, I was sent by the Father. I'm doing the work of the Father. I'm perfectly obedient to the Father. I'm doing what God has told me to do. Here's the thing. The problem wasn't that Jesus wasn't clear. The problem was that they didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear. The problem is that the religious leaders were so caught up in what they were doing that that they were actually spiritually blind. And we've talked about this spiritual blindness a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. And that left them spiritually ignorant. See, there, there really is no question that they knew who Jesus was claiming to be. Again, in just a couple of verses, they will once again pick up stones to try to kill him. But the religious leaders, they were walking in darkness. They, they would not allow themselves to accept that Jesus is the light. Despite all the evidence, Jesus goes deeper at this moment, as he so often does, and he actually tells these religious leaders who think they have it all together, you're actually not even my sheep. I'm the good shepherd that's come to call the flock to myself, to, to lead the flock, to care for the flock, to, to bring you to, to green pastures, to bring you to still waters. But you're not even here. You're actually on the outside, even though you think you've got it all together. Matt Carter, I think, helpfully helps us understand what Jesus is calling out in them when he writes, we don't believe in Jesus to become God's sheep, but we believe because we are God's sheep. He says, anyone looking for an excuse to ignore Jesus will find one. As I, as I read that this week, it, it just sort of resonated and echoed as I look at the world around me too. People who are looking for an excuse to ignore Jesus or what uh, the Bible or Christianity or God might put on their lives as a call, if you're looking for a reason not to believe, you will find it. He goes on, Carter does, and says, we can always rationalize what we've already made up our minds to do. And so this truth compels us, each of us, to listen for the master's voice. 
Jesus is showing us here our inability to save ourselves. Unless God gives us the ability to hear the voice of Jesus, we will not be able to hear it. We must recognize our utter helplessness apart from Jesus to receive salvation and turn to him alone. We don't do anyone a favor by suggesting that they can in some way assist God in saving themselves. And he says the truth pictured uh, is pictured in the miracles on either side of this passage. Could a blind man make himself see? Of course not. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 11. Can, can Lazarus, spoiler alert, can Lazarus raise himself from the dead? Can a blind or deaf sinner give himself sight in life? No, of course not. Only God can save. Jesus continues speaking. Then we see Jesus expose the consequence of unbelief. We'll keep reading at verse 25. Jesus answered them, the religious leaders. He says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. He says again, my, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands and I and the Father are one. And here again, the Jews know what he's saying. They picked up stones again to stone him. Look at, look at the promise Jesus gives to those who are his sheep. And today, uh, a sheep has turned into a bit of a derogatory term, hasn't it, on social media? But that's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is talking about the promise of those who follow him. The ones who, who put their trust in him, who put their trust in the good shepherd. He gives this gift that, that can never be earned. In verse 28, eternal life. And he goes beyond just saying, here's a gift. And he promises that nothing can take that gift away. See, here's the thing. Every single one of us, whether we believe Jesus or not, is putting our hope and our trust in something. Every single one of us is looking to something to find our meaning, our value, our identity. Every single one of us worships something, whether we would call it worship or not. We give our time, our talents, our, our money, our energy, our thoughts at, at this one thing or whatever this thing might be. Every single one of us worships something. The religious leaders here, they worshipped their worship. Their, their hope was in just how great they were at keeping all the rules. What about, what about you? What are you hoping in, trusting in, finding your identity and meaning and value and purpose in? Is it your, your job? Is it your saving account? Is it your rugged good looks that will never fade away? Is it your relationships or the prospect of another relationship? And we've, we've all seen that every single one of those things can be snatched away in an instant. But Jesus promised. The abundant life that Jesus promises cannot be snatched away. As one writer says, this is the truth that if Jesus saves you, you are saved for good. 
If, if Jesus makes you alive, you will never die. If Jesus gives you sight, you will never go blind. If Jesus adopts you, you will never be alone. If Jesus takes you in his hands, you will be in those hands beyond the bounds of time. And when this age is a faint whispers in the annals of time, Jesus will still be holding you safe and secure in his hands. Nothing and no one can touch you there. Now, maybe as we read these verses, they can sort of stir up in us a bit of anxiety. Am I one of those sheep? Am I in his hands? Am I, am I, am I in? Is Jesus talking about me or have I missed it? Well, let me suggest that these verses should bring hope. And asking those questions even should give you hope. Because they suggest that you're, you are striving to, to learn from God. You are striving to, to follow Jesus. You are waiting to hear from God. And, and these are all signs that God is, in fact, calling you to himself. We do, of course, need to step out and, and repent and turn and put our hope and trust in Jesus. These are good questions for us to be wrestling with. And as we've just read, if, if God has called us to his Son, Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35 to 39 is one of my favorite passages, and we sang it, a chunk of it this morning. Nothing can separate us from the love of God if we trust Jesus, because we are more than conquerors in Christ. There is, there is no guilt too great for God to forgive. There is nothing you and I have done that is, that is so bad or, or so uh, wild and out there that it wasn't able to be paid for by Jesus on the cross. There's nothing that we could do that, that, that God and Jesus sitting next to him and having looked down and say, oh man, we didn't think of a plan for Sean to go up and mess like this. Our hope is in Jesus' promise, not in our own performance. How, how can Jesus promise this? Verse 30, he tells us, because I and the Father are one. This is not just some good teacher giving us hope. This is not just some sage spouting modern day wisdom. This is not just some guru giving us some good teaching. These words are coming from God himself. And the Jews recognize this and pick up stones again to kill Jesus because he is claiming to be God and they understand exactly what he's just said. Now at this point, I think Jesus would have been entirely justified to just kind of shake his hat, head, shake the dust off his sandals, and just leave the temple and leave the religious leaders and say, I tried, I give up. But he makes one last call for them to believe by exposing the mistake of their unbelief. We've seen so far in this passage that Jesus has exposed the reasons for unbelief. They were just hard-hearted and not wanting to believe. He's exposed the consequences of unbelief. It's, it's missing the promise of eternal life. And now Jesus exposes the folly of unbelief. Look at how Jesus continues to respond to them in verse 32. He sees the Jews pick up the stones to, to, to stone him, and he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He basically says, listen, you've seen what I've done. You've heard my words. And in order to maintain your position and your beliefs, you're ignoring all of that. 
Jesus describes his, his works specifically for us in a couple of different ways. First, he calls them good. He says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. When he says good here, he means more than just, I, I've done the morally correct thing. I've done things that were morally excellent. But he's talking about going way beyond that. I've done, I've done beautiful things for you. I've done praiseworthy things for you. I read this analogy this week. I think it's, it's helpful, uh, the, an illustration. Imagine if a, a fully gifted Rembrandt went back to ele- elementary school and he gets his report card and he notices among all his other A's, if you remember, you know, we don't have A's in our school report cards anymore for kindergartens, but think of, you know, the high marks, the A's. But he looks at his report card and he's got an F in art for some reason. And so he picks up his art portfolio and strolls uh, lovingly and kindly and generously into his kindergarten art teacher's class and he spreads apart all these Rembrandt's multi-million dollar paintings today's on her desk and they look around the class and they see the other kids thumbprints and finger painting art and the scribbled colors and, and he looks at their works and he looks at his and he points down at, at his pictures and says, which of these beautiful pictures is the reason you failed my class or you failed me in your class? Jesus is taking the beautiful works, those things that we saw the good shepherd being prophesied to do from Isaiah or from Ezekiel 34. He said, I've, I've given sight to the blind. The lame can walk. I've given hope. Given, I've, I've done all these things. For which of these good works are you going to stone me for? This is Jesus the perfect Son of God, living in the midst of a world filled with darkness and spiritual darkness. And everything he's done, every action, every word, every moment of his life, he's bringing light into that darkness. He's completely right. He's completely obedient to the Father. And not only has he never sinned, but he travels around. He's not just avoiding sin, but he actually goes out of his way to help the helpless, to heal the lame and the sick, to give sight to the blind, to cure the leper, to restore people into God's community. And so he basically lays all that out in front of the leaders there and says, for which of these things are you going to kill me? But if we look at that statement, he goes even a little bit deeper. He says, which of these good works from the Father are you going to kill me for? See, the, the men standing in front of Jesus who have just picked up stones are so blinded by their religion that they miss the beauty and the glory of the Son of God standing right in front of them. Matt Carter, again, hopefully says, their religion, the religious leader's religion, which was full of man-made requirements designed to impress God, is weak and worthless in the presence of Jesus. How weak is a religion that opposes healing a blind man? How worthless is a religion that wants to kill a man for helping the downcast and the oppressed? They can't see how amazing Jesus is. They think Jesus is just a man who's making himself God in verse 33. They've missed and they've reversed the truth. He is God who made himself a man, Jesus is. And he is displaying the power and grace that can only be explained by God becoming a man. Three times they've tried to kill Jesus, but still Jesus calls them to come to him and receive salvation from sin and death through him. Jesus pleads with them to believe in him, if for no other reason than the works he's been doing. And he says, there's, there's one explanation for what I've done. I've, I've come from the Father. I'm one with the Father. Believe in me and don't keep on in your unbelief. 
the question he asks for us is, would you offer salvation to the people trying to kill you? Because Jesus does. And it's a good thing because every single one of us is described as an enemy of God. And Jesus, in his grace, pleads with them and pleads with us to turn from our sin and follow him. Look what Jesus says really to kind of drive it home in verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe me. That sounds almost like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? If the resurrection never happened, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else. All of this is gone. Jesus said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe my words, he says, believe in the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Please, guys, if you're not going to listen to my words, if, my, if the things that are coming out of my mouth offend you, at least look at what I've done. You guys, you know the Torah, you know the Scriptures, you know who is coming and what they're supposed to do, and look at what I've done. If we finish reading the passage, we see that they ignore Jesus' words. They ignore Jesus' works. And again, verse 39, they try to arrest Jesus, but he escapes. The bulk of Jesus' public ministry is, is now over. And look, look how it ended. Again, at the start of the passage, we're told he's in, the, he's in the temple. He's around the hub of Judaism, the, the, the nation, the people of God who've been waiting for him for generations and generations and generations and generations. And their leaders reject him and don't believe him. Throughout his ministry, Jesus has repeatedly and graciously called people to himself, revealed himself as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the one sent from God. But the religious leaders and many other religious people of that day chose their unbelief as well. The last couple of verses in chapter 10 tell us that Jesus went away from the city. He went across the Jordan River to the place where John had been baptizing it at first. And there he remained. He left the city. He left the temple. He left the religious hub of Israel. And the good shepherd went out to the pasture and kept calling his sheep to follow him. And we do read in verse 42, many believed in him there. As we wrap up, let me invite you to take a minute and sort of look at your own life and, and see if there are areas of unbelief Maybe you don't believe in Jesus at all and, and you read about his works and you, you read his words and, and maybe you were invited this morning by a friend or stumbled across our, our link online and you're here and, and I'm, I'm so glad you're here. But what is standing in the way of you believing in Jesus? What is, what is the root behind your unbelief? Maybe you, you do believe in Jesus but you're having a hard time totally believing in Jesus. You're holding maybe some part of your life back, keeping, keeping it under control yourself. Maybe it's a job. Maybe, maybe you sense that, that God is calling you to some place or somewhere or some, some job. You're like, oh, but I'm really, I'm really comfortable right here, so I'm just going to stick it out. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, you know, like a, a spouse, or not a spouse, a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, someone you're, you're, you're you're with, and, and you know maybe this is not right, and maybe you've got a sense that, that God is leading you out of this relationship, but you're like, no, you can control these things, God, but I really like this. I'm going to hang on to that myself. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction. 
you know that God wants you to turn over your social media use, your, your eating and drinking, your, your looking at pornography or whatever it is. You know that God has something better for you than all of those things, but you're like, ah, oh, God, I kind of like that. I'll hang on to this. You can have the last bits. Maybe it's your finances or your kids or your parents. And you're willing to, to surrender lots of things to Jesus, but not that. Why, why is that? That's the question. Why are you wrestling with unbelief or, or what's making you think that, that Jesus isn't good enough or big enough to handle that thing or trustworthy enough to lead you in that area? Why won't you trust him? Because Jesus is the good shepherd and he will care for his sheep. He promises life abundant life, eternal life, life to the full, life as it was meant to be lived. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these words. Thank you that uh, even in the face of, of unbelief, in the face of rejection, you pleaded one more time. You asked one more time, why, what, what's wrong? What's in the way? Which of my works is pointing you away from the Father? What of my words is, is driving you away? Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would work in our lives. That you would stir up the things uh, in us that, that maybe are areas of unbelief for us. Maybe as, as I've asked, if, if, if someone's never yet trusted you, I, I pray that you would, you would uh, expose their reasons for not believing. That you would uh, stir up in them uh, the question of, well, what's, what's my reason? And, and deal with that. Give wisdom. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to reach out. Either hit the pray with us button or, or go to trinitycanmore.com slash prayer and, and drop a note. That'll come to me and I would love to to, to talk through and, and pray through some of those reasons with you. And for those who would call themselves sheep, followers of Jesus already, Holy Spirit, I ask again that you would reveal the areas of unbelief in, in our lives too. The, the areas where we're not totally surrendered to you. Help us to Repent and turn and, and trust you in all those things because you are the good shepherd, the one that laid down his life for us.